It's time for another Pinball Profile. I'm your host, Jeff Teols. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com, and please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. One of my favorite things about Pinburg is how you get to see really everybody from all over the world. And when you happen to come across a man who has dedicated most of his life, probably more than any person you know, to pinball, that's a real thrill. And he's our guest today. Steve Epstein joins us. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, it's going to be a great history lesson for so many people today to hear about the legendary Broadway Arcade, something your father took over. I guess that would have been in 1963, and then you took over the yeah. reins. And uh, that's a place I certainly miss. I wish I could go back in time to that magical place in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when you were there. But uh, let's let's reminisce, shall we? Absolutely. It was called the Pinball Capital of the World. And when we talk about arcades, think of this. 6,000 square feet upstairs, 6,000 square feet downstairs. And for such a long period of time, too. Your father took it over in 63. What was his passion for arcades? Well, I was very fortunate. Uh, my dad uh, came involved in the uh, amusement industry when he got out of the Army. I guess it was 48. And uh, it turns out that one of his cousins, a, uh, a second cousin, was, it was Albert Simon. And I don't know if you're familiar, but Albert Simon at that time was one of the biggest distributor and operator of arcades in the eastern area of the country. And uh, that was uh, basically our silent partner. And my dad had previously worked in the 50s at managing an arcade in Newark, New Jersey. And that was all pinball. I remember six years old, seven years old, we're going back to well, my age of 70, so we're talking about 1953, 54. I would go in on a Sunday with my brother, and we would uh, be handed the keys to the machines, and the two little guys would be running around, and that's where I got introduced to pinball, standing on a um, basically a milk carton and playing pinball. Uh, and my dad, his philosophy was basically give the public a variety of different opportunities. So other than pinball, when we got into the Broadway Arcade, before obviously pinball was not legal, uh, there was a multitude of different types of entertainment. But he always stressed the idea that you want to have a multiple types of entertainment to, I guess, in, in capture as many uh, people as you could, you know, that have different varied interests. So he had a passion for the industry, and he passed that on to me. Yeah, because there weren't pinball machines, thanks to Mary LaGuardia, for a long period of time. What, the uh-huh. 40s till the mid-70s? So I guess the Broadway Arcade was filled with redemption games, which a lot of people associate to today, but that's something you had way back then. Yes, absolutely. We had, um, let me see, we had 20 skee-ball machines, a whole wall of them. We had about 20 different types of pokerinos and bingerinos, all that were hand-dispensed tickets. You know, everything back in those days, no computers, everything was done by hand. And uh, the different types of redemption, actually, the, that industry had not developed. Uh, so we were basically buying different types of dish sets and, you know, all different different things from different types of uh, job shoppers that uh, had what we call tchotchkes, you know, cups. And, uh, you know, it, it was... Uh, um, it was, it was much different than it is today. There was no plush. There was no stuffed animals and, you know, that type of stuff with those types of equipment. So it was all, you know, you can get a nice set of dishes if you wanted a bicycle. You could get, uh, you know, Scrabble sets. 
anything and everything. Hold on. That, as far as prices. So I could say to my mom, my mom would say, what are you doing at the arcade? Mom, I'm getting you some new dishes. Like, That's you could get away true. with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, yeah, we had oh. uh, quite a few customers that would return annually during the summer and, you know, would come in with the hundreds and hundreds of tickets they had stored and kept for the years that they were visiting and eventually got whatever they wanted. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting, uh, you know, way of, of, of developing a business. And, uh, again, my dad was very acute at, picking types of merchandise that he knew that would really be attractive to multiple different types of people. But even back then, they had the, the famous gun games and the cranes and all kinds of other things. You mentioned skeetball. Yeah, there was a lot of variety even before pinball. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was an industry that developed along with pinball, but a lot of other different types of devices, you know, from whatever, from the 30s and the 20s with the Harry Williams and uh, different people that would work in their garages and create these little devices that they put out for a penny and you would be entertained and, you know, you get a, get a little prize or you'd get, you know, just the notoriety being the top scorer. It definitely was a different type of industry. But again, it was all about entertainment. You mentioned that redemption. I remember as a kid going to a local pinball arcade, and if you got the high score on whatever machine, at the end of the month they'd give you a T-shirt. And that was like the best trophy you could possibly ever get. I mean, it meant you could wear that around school, and people were like, hey, how'd you get that? And, of course, you couldn't buy it. It had to be the champ. That's right. (laughs) Uh, That's funny you mentioned that because we did a lot of T-shirts over the years for pinball uh, at our at the Broadway Arcade, for sure. And what a location, too. Broadway and 52nd. You couldn't be at a better place, just north of Times Square. So I know there were a lot of people that from Broadway and megastars would show up there all the time. Did the volume increase once pinball came in there in the mid-'70s? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, it was a whole... I guess you'd have to say it was the perfect storm for for us. Uh, 52nd Street and Broadway, when we were first started in the early 60s, was really kind of the outlier. It was not really what you would want as far as a place that had foot traffic. It was really above, you know, really where the intense uh, traffic was. But in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, they started building these 70-story, 60-story office towers a block away on 6th Avenue and 5th Avenue, all around us in Midtown. So now you have these buildings going up, and all of a sudden in 75, 76, pinball got reinstated, and the video became part of our repertoire of entertainment. So we were really at the forefront of, of, of offering this type of entertainment to a very new audience that was just coming into that area. So as I always say, we were very lucky (laughs) we had the the perfect scenario as far as creating a business that was not only successful but was very well uh, loved and appreciated by a multitude of people but even though you were just north of times square and as you say maybe not the most desirable place that's the great thing about new york i think of all the legendary clubs and they might not have been in prime locations but you went out of your way to go find cbgb's in the east village the old cotton club was legendary studio 54 on west 54th palladium and copacabana i mean all these legendary places because you got the reputation People wanted to be there, and I imagine that was the same with Broadway Arcade. Yes. Well, it worked out very well for us. I mean, we were situated, again, in the, in the perfect spot. There was the media. Uh, there were a lot of media outlets, CBS, ABC, and, and NBC were all up in that area, and 
fortunately for us, we did have some of those writers and, and personalities as customers. So whenever there was a story related to something new about a video or a pinball machine, we were very well situated. First, I had a personal relationship with most of these people to come in and, and talk about it and get a story. So, yes, it kind of built on itself. And I guess the biggest break we ever had was through the Village Voice, an old state New York, uh, you know, hippie, uh, you know, under, underground magazine. Oh, it, it's and huge. Of, yeah, the Village yeah. Voice. If it wasn't for that, people wouldn't have known about Woodstock. Oh, I, I, know, yeah. I know about the Village Voice for sure. Yeah, well, there was a, a writer named Howard Smith that did a column called The Scene. And Howard was um, a fellow Jerseyan as myself, and uh, I got to be very friendly with him. And he'd come up and play, and he was really the first guy, the first person to really feature something that we had at the store. And that was Hercules, the very first incredibly large pinball machine. And that was the first real story with pictures that uh, I can really recall that kind of set us along our way. So it was actually Hercules and Howard Smith that got Broadway Arcade on the map. And everyone started to show up. In fact, you had lots of celebrities. It would be not uncommon to see Paul Simon playing, Paul Newman, Ed Sullivan used to play in the day. And in fact, even Lou Reed held a wedding reception at Broadway Arcade. Yeah, uh, that's another great uh, pinball uh, connection. Yes, uh, Lou and I had formed the friendship, I think, in 77, 78. And uh, yeah, when he got married, uh, we offered him the arcade for his wedding uh, reception. He happily agreed. And uh, with that, yeah, it was a very interesting evening, to say the least. Well, in the 70s, you certainly came across somebody that became one of your greatest friends in Roger Sharp, too. And Roger, obviously an excellent player and He got the law turned around from LaGuardia when he showed that it was a game of skill. And that really changed things, I imagine, for Broadway Arcade and for you personally. Oh, immensely, immensely. Uh, I formed a, as now still a lifelong friendship with Roger. Quite a a fortunate uh, happenstance for me because through him, I got a much better understanding of pinball, um, a much better feeling for the uniqueness of pinball and what it can bring to a, a personal experience. And it really opened my eyes to a world that I really wasn't exposed to. So Roger definitely is key to everything and anything about Broadway Arcade's true success as far as becoming a pinball capital. So as pinball machines started to come back and, and you were allowed to have them at Broadway Arcade, I guess one of the big changes too was the add a ball as opposed to free games. Yeah, what happened for us and the way the law was changed, and we were, since we were visible with a license, we needed to follow the law, and Adderball was the only way we could operate the pinball. But, again, that happened to be a very lucky happenstance because, as my dad would tell me, you know, you're not giving away another game, which was a, at, at that time a 25-cent value, I mean, actually a dime value, but when it we eventually got up to 25 cents in the late 70s. He said, you're only giving them time. You're not giving them another, another you know. So the time concept, which was, you know, an easy way to, one, extend your game, but also to get a higher score. So all those things led to what developed into the competitive world of Papa with Roger and I, you know, playing game after game after game for two or three years and you know the higher scores became what was more desirable than getting a a free game because we attached t 
T-shirts to the high scores and, and again, other different marketing ability by getting higher scores. And that really, uh, you know, I was always told you need to have that knocker, you need to have that feeling that you won something. But in reality, we replaced that all with the competitive pinball idea, and it worked seamlessly for us and uh, created what we have today, which is phenomenal. Yes, you and Roger putting together Papa as we know it, uh, the ranking system. It didn't exist mm-hmm. until you guys came up with this. And it was just, I assume there were a lot of competitors in New York that just wanted to see, okay, where do I really rank? You know, I know how I'm doing on this machine at this time in this four-player game or whatever the case may be. But what about comparing it to everyone else? And the Papa system was created and also world championships. You had six that you hosted. Yeah, until we, until the arcade closed in 97, yeah, we uh, were doing these world championships that, again, was a development out of the idea uh, that Roger and I conceived of as far as where we want, how we want to approach bringing players and making them interested in competing. And we both had a background in bowling. Actually, that was my lettered sport in high school. <laughs> and uh, he also was a, a high-end bowler. And we both realized that the system, the scoring system, which they call the Peterson Point System, would lend itself very well to pinball because we could assign values with different point values. So a score had a certain value. And then you could adjust that accordingly to the different types of level of competition, whether you had a league with nine people in it or you had a league with doubles uh, with 12 people in it, six teams. And so we, we actually patterned it very much after our bowling experience, and it fits seamlessly into the point system that Roger developed uh, called the PEBCA, which is the point proficiency average per game, which is like a ERA or a batting average. And our hope was that we could handicap through that system to players. And as it has evolved, that has worked very well throughout this uh, you know, country, the world, actually. It's so easy to do now with match play software, with never drain software, but go back to when you and Roger and even Lionel (laughs) Martinez were logging 10,000 sets of games over a five-year period just to kind of get some basis. Yes, that's what we did. (laughs) And Roger keeping all the scores, and he actually to this day has those in his home somewhere, which I can appreciate, but uh, don't think I want around me. It was... How's the best way to say it? It became a very workable system. And, of course, we all did that with paper and pencil. All the poppet tournaments were done with paper and pencil and little hand-adding machines. It was an unbelievable amount of work. And uh, it's so great to see this all, like you said, in Pinburg, with a 1,000 players all putting in scores, and within 10 minutes you knew where you were going next. Obviously, the computers have helped a lot. I was very fortunate in the early days to have a couple of my um, my players that were in the leagues that were computer programmers, and they'd come up with a rudimentary uh, system for me to use to keep keep the uh, scores and everything else. So I did have that a little bit, but not like you have today. It is amazing to think of how it once was, and really that you guys had the passion to make this grow and expand. Before there was the internet, before the computers, and it just happened to be in the biggest city in the world, you had the best venue. And this venue, too, let's put things into perspective. The square footage was probably pretty pricey back then. 
Yeah, we um, when we eventually uh, had to renegotiate our uh, our lease, which was when we had been there, we were really coming to the end of a twenty year lease that my dad had picked up and was coming due in probably eighty seven, and they at that time a hotel came in, bought the air rights to the building that we were in, which was actually built early in the depression, was ran out of money, was topped off, but had a foundation for a 45-story building, and it was topped off at six floors. And uh, this Novotel company came in, and they bought the air rights, and actually from 84 to 87, they built this hotel right on top of us as we were still trying to operate and be in business. And unfortunately, uh, when that building got done, we had an inch, a difficult negotiation with our new landlord, and we had to abandon the uh, 6,000 square foot space to move next door to a 1,500 square space to keep operating. That was the settlement that we made to keep on going. But again, we didn't have a real legal footing because of the way the laws were in New York for zoning, we couldn't even move our license 10 feet to where we were now set up. So it was sort of a hush-hush uh, deal done by the uh, powers that be so the hotel could open up and we could abandon the arcade and because they needed that space to put the part of the lobby of the new hotel. So that kind of got us to this point where the second Broadway arcade was built or started back in 87, which was a 1,500-square-foot 67 piece location and 67 pieces we still maintain 20 pinball machines paying 150 dollars a square foot okay there it is 150 dollars a square foot and your pinball machines are taking up a lot more real estate than a stand-up video game machine and you mentioned this is 87 so you still had the passion for pinball even though that cost you more in the square footage Mm -hmm. no absolutely but again now we go back to my dad's whole concept of alternate different types of entertainment we yeah so it could have been easy to put in all video games and just done didn't that but it just it didn't make sense to me I, I i really felt that you know having that balance and creating different because you do, you really do have two different clientele there's a video player and there's a pinball player they usually don't they mix but they don't play that intently on, you know, a video player may play a game of pinball once or twice, and the same with a pinball player with a video game, but they're not going to uh, put all their money into just one, you know, and they'll keep it more into one focus, and um, again, we attracted, because it's New York City, that's the key, you have a volume of people, you know, 10 million people within a half hour where you are, you know, it's a lot of people, so, uh, you know, it's the perfect place, and, and for exactly what we did. Forgetting the square footage, were you making more money off the pinball machines or the video games at that time? And this is the mid. Uh, this is once you moved in '87. Yeah, well, it, no, the video obviously became much more of an income get, uh, getter only because, again, you know, it was a, a much quicker quarter until of, then until they got people got like a Pac-Man. You know, when Pac-Man first came out, you burned through it by the second, third month. You could spend an hour playing a Pac-Man. Where pinball, up front, you could play a little longer than a video game, but you're never going to play more than 15, even the best players not going to play more than 15, 20 minutes on a game. So it balanced itself out eventually. But again, the video, because it was newer and it was attracting more people, that was really the way you're going to make your money. 
One thing that was great about Broadway Arcade was that it was a great place to test machines. And a lot of the companies really looked at some of the scores and some of the ways games were played based on your customers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting way we became a test location. Uh, there's a little inside story with my good friend Roger. Uh, at the time, Roger was uh, writing reviews for the uh, trade magazines. And he had to travel, well, let's see where he was lived in New York. He'd have to travel to Connecticut or Pennsylvania to find new or new games that were coming out on test in different areas. So he convinced me that, uh, you know, I should try to buy all new equipment and maybe we could become a test market. Well, I didn't realize why he was doing that, but it made sense to me. But he did it because he didn't want to have to travel all over the place. So now he was able to establish all these games coming in. He didn't have to go anywhere. He just had to come to the arcade, and uh, he could review all the games he wanted. And, of course, we were very well accepted by the manufacturers because we had quite a bit of good players. Uh, myself is, you know, understood what made a good machine, I think, because through Roger's tutelage. I understood what a balance a game had to be, why, you know, shots were shots, why people would be interested in pursuing playing a pinball and so we were able to give uh, the designers, because back in the day, they had more time to produce a game. You know, the companies hadn't gone public. There wasn't those every 90-day numbers they had to produce. So they could spend six months developing a thermal machine by testing, getting feedback, changing certain things on a play field, you know, that they could, they could do before the finished product. Unfortunately, that stopped years ago when the whole cycle of having to... Uh, you know, produce numbers for their stockholders. And that's a whole nother story to me, the reason the industry actually went bad, if you want to put it that way. Hmm. Uh, there was a whole cycle that developed, but, you know, we can get into that later. That's another talk maybe for another time. Yeah, you've mentioned a lot there, Steve. And, you know, you talk about Roger maybe not wanting to travel, and that's why he put them there. You know what I hear? I hear he just wanted the games there so they could win a free set of dishes for Ellen. That's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. I, it's interesting that companies don't do that today. The pinball companies, at least I don't believe, I ha I'm not aware of it, are putting machines out to be tested because that's just not how machines are revealed today. Is that a lost art? Couldn't companies benefit from that today or is it just a different world as far as marketing games? I really can't answer that question, but it's evident to me by cause of all these uh, software updates that keeps on coming out for years after the game is put out just proves that, you know, they're not finished products when they come out of the uh, the shops as far as the, the length and the depth of the game. That's a different era because when we were doing it, we really had the very rudimentary type of computers. You know, the games weren't as sophisticated uh, when they first started being produced solid state there wasn't that much programming. They weren't that deep. It was more lights and different sounds and features. But now now there's so many different rule sets that uh, this becomes a, a sort of an abyss of, you know, trying to uh, keep something that's not going to be totally open-ended, but something that's going to keep people interested for a long period of time. That's why I feel there's a lot of these, you know, games that are, that are out for a year or two, and then they finally get the final updates. Uh, on the programming so uh so you just explained yeah. it right there you know what they don't need to put 
machines in an arcade to test because their test market are the consumers themselves. You can see right. them being streamed. You can see what the forums are saying about the games, and that's how the updates are made. Yeah, absolutely. But again, the design themselves, I mean, I remember a few features that we were able to have input with on certain games, and, you know, I'm very proud of, of what we accomplished uh, there as far as our input with the d- different designers. And and through Roger and, and going out to the shows, and I, I, well, I was very fortunate to get to know most of the, uh, the designers as friends and have a very good rapport and interaction with them. So, you know, it was, it was mutual respect, which was great. And, uh, you know, it, was, it would have never happened if uh, Roger hadn't uh, sort of taken me by the uh, short hairs and uh, pushed me to really get into what pinball was all about. So, Steve, with you and Roger creating the PAPA system, the scoring system, logging all those scores, an amazing thing started to happen at Broadway Arcade. Leagues began, and leagues as we know today. There was the Sweetheart League, in fact, and you had your wall of champions. How did the original leagues work? Well, to do the first test, the first beta... I selected nine. We, Roger and I figured we start with nine players, and that would be a singles league. And put them in groups of three, and they'd play three different games, and they would get points for winning first, second, and third. And at that point, that's how they would finish the day, and then the points would be accumulated, and that's how you'd rank. So to do that, I selected, again, some of the players that I knew, and I made the first league day on a Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. So these were young men who probably were out partying on Friday night, and my idea was if they showed up for league on Saturday morning to play, I had something really special. And that's what took place, actually. I specifically chose a Saturday morning because it would be the toughest day for these guys to get up and come out and play. And then they worked out. And from there, we developed all different types of leagues. We wanted to show that you could use different uh, types. Like I said, the Sweetheart League was a couples or married couples or dating couples league. We had, um, I did uh, youth leagues. I promoted through the Big Brothers and Big Sisters. I offered up, uh, you know, a, a chance for the, the Big Brothers and Big Sisters to come in and play in, in, in their own little organized league and i had been a big brother actually in college so i understood the need to have something to do with that particular age group and um, it worked out really well and so we showed uh, how young kids 10 11 12 years old can compete equally with an adult in a very legitimate competition and actually have value to what they were doing and uh, you know all those things add up to what pinball can give a person as far as rewards and, and self-esteem and just the, because that's what brought me to pinball was when I was seven years old and I'm playing, I had some sort of natural hand ability and I did very well at it. And I'd have adults come over and look at what I was doing and they'd all compliment me and wonder how I was doing it. <laughs> and, you know, when you're that age, that's a very impressionable thing. And to get that kind of feedback and that kind of validation goes a long way. And uh, that really was really the base for whatever took place after that. I strongly believe that everybody wants two things. They want to have fun and they want to be good at something, whatever it may be. So if it can happen to be both, in this case in pinball, that's a great benefit to your childhood and your well-being. And I think of kids today, again, being a parent, 
And I hear all kinds of parents talk about, oh, my kid, all they're doing on video games, video games, the Fortnite and this, that. And, you know, the summer is now past. And, oh, did you get out? Did you see your friends, you know, before you went back to school? No, but I talked to them online all the time. That's their way of socializing. And they're spending lots of hours doing this kind of thing. And I think about when I was a kid. Yes, it was different. I didn't sit in front of a computer because it wasn't a computer or, or even an Atari 2600 or whatever the home system was. I didn't sit in front of it for hours and hours. But what I did do every waking moment, if I could, if I wasn't playing baseball or, or some sort of sport or riding your bike, darn right, if I had some quarters in my pocket, I was going to an arcade. So, you know, it, it was just fun. And I think there are some benefits to that kind of social aspect and you talked about you as a seven-year-old having the hand-eye coordination and that really helped your self-esteem what are some of the other things you saw when you when you saw people have so much fun at broadway arcade to me the one thing i truly am most proud of is because of the diversity of of new york city and different levels of people that you will find between you know a different of stratas there was no 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 strata system in Broadway Arcade. The the poorest the poor, the wealthiest the wealthiest, all would come in, play side by side with no problem with each other, have a great time, walk out, go and go to the different world. So that part of it was very positive for me uh, to create an environment that allowed all different people from all different walks of life to come in, enjoy something, and then you know be able to get out and, and go about their lives. So. I always felt that was very positive. I always felt that the socialization aspect of it was very positive. You know, it's, it was the type of thing that friends get together and you get friendlier. Uh, you meet people. Like I said, I've met an oh, incredible amount of people over my lifetime through pinball that are still very special to me and, and special will always be. And the common denominator is pinball. I mean, there's so many stories I can tell about people I met and, and their experiences with pinball and different things, how it all kind of melded into this perfect world. I, I, know, I know nothing is perfect, but to me, pinball is nearly, nearly as perfect as anything can be, you know, and uh, it's just so unique and wonderful. Steve, you've known the secret for years. You've seen this. And that's the thing that I'm amazed about whenever I go to tournaments and big events is that everyone came from different walks of life. And it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your age, sex, anything. Anybody can love pinball. Anybody can be great at pinball. And that's the real, real cool thing. And yeah. you've known that for years now. So you saw that even back then. That's something. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I guess I was fit. I was the right person at the right time to be at, at Broadway Arcade. I mean, I'm just that. I'm open. I love people. I love to talk to people. I, I you know, and uh, just uh, I'm sort of a social cat. So it, it worked out. It just definitely worked out. And to this day, I, you know, I, I we talking about Broadway Arcade. I almost have a tear in my eye. I mean, it's, this was just a very special, special place, and I, I have to thank whomever up there in heaven that's uh, looking down on me to have let me experience it for so many years. I can't imagine if there's just one. There has to be several, but maybe your favorite or some of your favorite all-time moments at Broadway Arcade. Oh, boy. Um, I guess the <laughs> one of the ultimate experiences involves Roger, Lou Reed, and myself. And uh, I was playing Sea Witch against Roger, and Lou was happened to be over our shoulder. And I probably had the best ball I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, it must have lasted 20 minutes. And just to have that two people that were there watching me play, and uh, that happened to be, you know, that sticks out in my mind as one of the uh, 
all-time nights of my life. But again, you know, there's so many different games and so many different experiences over the years. You know, going to a trade show and, um, you know, hanging out with Steve Ritchie and playing Black Knight for the first time. Or, um, you know, going in and uh, playing um, Adam's Family, you know, with Pat Lawler. You know, it, it, it was just these type of things that, um, you know, being able to go to the designers' rooms, uh, at Williams and Bally and Stern and Gottlieb and have some input with the designers, you know, with Roger, obviously. I mean, I wasn't going on my own, but, you know, we, we, we formed a very good team, Roger and I. We'd always, everyone would look around and say, you know, who's attached at the hip, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it just, it was just unique. So those type of experiences and then having the input and, and being able to help. I mean, we had an issue. We had the, one of the first prototypes of Adam's family come in. And believe it or not, when Thing used to pick up the ball and bring it down into the uh, the lower part of the game, there was a little issue with if your game wasn't perfectly pitched, the ball would not actually go through the channel and go and be back in play. And we found that out real quick, and I think we uh, helped out a little bit on that one. But, you know, that was one of those type of things, that being involved with one of the greatest pinball machines ever made might not have been there because of that little problem it may not have worked well so again you know it's those type of experiences uh really just make me feel great and you know, i can always look back at them and i have that for myself so it's been a great trip yeah great memories indeed and i know somebody that was really close to you maybe you can describe to people who the late john hammond was and how important he was to broadway arcade well yeah john i got to meet john hammond who uh uh, wonderful man, uh, wonderful man. He uh, actually is a, uh, a record producer at CBS, and he specialized actually in jazz in the beginning. He, um, his lineage was his grandfather was Commodore Vanderbilt, believe it or not. He grew up, as he told me, in what is now the Russian embassy in New York City, and you know enjoyed whatever that world was. But as a young man, he dedicated his life to music and into jazz and he was really responsible for so many things that happened in the world of jazz but he also spanned the contemporary world he uh, he basically signed bruce springsteen to his first contract i know i wrote something about that because it's actually pinball that john loved and bruce springsteen turns out to be as people know a very avid pinball player and uh, that love of that of pinball actually became a basis for their trust that allowed John to, you know, sign, sign Bruce Springsteen. So, you know, those things you'll never know. You know, so meeting John opened up an incredible world to me. You know, just having the validation of somebody of that world uh, who'd come in to the arcade, all he wanted to do was hang around during lunchtime, and his favorite game was actually the original Bally Playboy. And that was something that uh, he, he really, you know, he, he would go there for an hour, hour and a half every day. And then he was already in his late 60s, early 70s. And he, you know, just having that experience was uh, very unique, very unique. I imagine another unique experience. I'm glad to see it back in New York City. The guys from Never Beef bringing back big pinball events to New York City because that's something you did with the original Papa series at the Park Central Hotel, I believe, wasn't it? Yes, it was the ballroom at the Park Central Hotel. And uh, we were able to bring in, because of, again, the, uh, my relationship that had formed with different distributors and operators in the area, I was able to get these 
gentlemen to bring games off their route. I mean, I could not physically bring in a hundred pinball machines. Uh, I didn't have the hundred pinball machines and, uh, I couldn't take them out of the Broadway arcade because that was my living. So, um, we got different operators to bring in a certain, set up a certain number of eight. We, we started with eight games. Roger and I developed a line of pinball and we would develop it through what was current in the operating world. That would be your qualifying bank, and uh, we'd have four of those banks, each identical, all set up so that neither no game played similarly. So if we had a game that had similar shots in the line, we would move them. We'd never be next to each other, so no one could get comfortable playing, you know, getting into a rhythm. We always felt we needed to keep things as a, at, a, at the highest level of possible. And then the manufacturers brought in all the, the newest equipment that were going to be debuted at the, uh, at the show at the tournament. So those would be the finals games. And uh, they would be, in, uh, we'd have um, Williams bring in, Valley bring in one each, and Premier and Got- or Gottlieb, Stern. At one point when Gottlieb was, came out, when Premier and then Gottlieb started or Capcom started, we'd have extra games like that. And that's uh, really filled up the ballroom and uh, accommodated the hundreds of people that came to play. And uh, again, it was uh, a very unique uh, you know, having even getting scorekeepers, I my children, I have two wonderful daughters. Uh, they one was in high school at the time, uh, and the other one was in grade school. And we bring their friends in to keep score. So I'd have forty kids up in the hotel rooms in the hotel, which was the Park Central, that were keeping score. Uh, everything by hand uh, was incredible. Just you know, if you think about the logistics of it today, I don't know if I'd have the strength to do it. But I have to say, my wife. Sandra, Joseph Camarado from Alpha Amusements, and, and Frank Sininsky, their wives, all helped. I mean, it was just an amazing group that came together to put this thing on. And, uh, you know, just the work involved and having the text come from the manufacturers would supply text. Tom Cahill comes to mind. was just phenomenal. Tom, another great pinball guy. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, with Tom Cahill from Williams, but uh, one of the most wonderful people you ever want to meet. And he was the head tech there. And, you know, he'd come in and work on some of the games again, and Jim Sherd was from Stern would be there. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't even rate Tansy. I mean, there's so many different names that uh, have, you know, happened that uh, just, you know, just the coming together. It was a real happening, especially because it was new. I mean, uh, and then people just responded so well to it. Steve, you still have the passion today about pinball, and I love talking to you about this and, and hearing these great memories, too. And that passion obviously carried over, too, in your Broadway Arcade days in the early 90s when you put out the flip side. So, again, yeah. pre-internet, pre-forums and all that other stuff, here's Steve producing a 20- to 40-page magazine, and it is amazing, all the content in the old articles. And you can find those actually on papa.org, and I recommend doing them. But, I mean, the different reviews, the different writers. I was reading one about, you know, Fishtails and Lethal Weapon 3 coming out and all. It's really Mm -hmm. amazing articles and and good stuff in there that I imagine that took a lot of your time to put together the flip side. Oh, it did. I mean, again, Roger was very helpful and uh, actually one of Roger's... uh Roger's secretary at Williams helped us do the editing and putting the magazine together. So it was Anna? a team effort, for sure. Um, no, this was, oh, God, you know, I'm caught badly because I can't remember oh, okay. her name. I, you know, I want to definitely re- you know, acknowledge because she did a lot of the work. But we also, you know, used a lot of the players to write reviews. 
and then had the designers give us stories. I mean, it was just a nice community of people, and it was great to be able to do it for the time we were able to, you know, accomplish it. Unfortunately, a lot of those um, the magazines went to the river, <laughs> to the flood in Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, when Papa was when Papa went to uh, Kevin and uh, you know his, his location, but uh, you know at least they're still there. And and thank Kevin for keeping it alive by posting it and, and putting it in the archives of Papa from Pittsburgh. Yeah, a lot of the flip side actual physical magazines, but I, but I know Kevin has at least one of every one. So and and some of those are on PDF forms on Papa.org. And speaking of Papa, I know you know Roger Sharp's been on this uh, show before, and and obviously you've talked about it too. He was a little regretful that it finally got sold to Kevin. I mean, it was something he might have wanted to do something different with. But your reasons for selling Papa? No. The reason was, um, and I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie Special When Lit, which I was uh, luckily enough to be involved with, but um, I, I, I was in a pretty bad mental state. Now, I mean, not mental where I was going out doing bad things, but it was a, a very depressing situation going from, you know, being the sort of the top of the world to uh, being anonymous again. And, uh, you know, no direction. And I didn't want Papa to stop, and I didn't have the... Uh, ability to you know do it without having the Broadway Arcade, so the option came that uh, Kevin Martin, who was a uh, designer and, and programmer who had made a wonderful fortune with his pair, uh, you know, hosting uh, web company, uh, was able well, seemed to be the right fit. I had met Kevin at the tournaments; he had come to almost all the poppers, you know. So I had, I had you know a good feeling that he would to be a good shepherd of it, and I didn't want it to end. So at that point, I just wanted to be put in the hands. I didn't want to have to deal with it anymore. And uh, if I had more of a mental uh, acuity or, or less <laughs> sort of a dull ache in my head, I might not. I might have licensed it and worked with Kevin, but I didn't see that at the time. And you know that was an unfortunate, but but not so unfortunate because you know with Rogers' kids and we resurrected the IFPA, which was a competing uh, tournament uh, group that the uh, industry had set up, which didn't go very well and we, that's another story for another day on why all that didn't work out but yeah. um, so we took over the AFPA name and uh, the companies that uh, had started it were more than happy to uh, give us the name and uh, Josh and Zach and, and all their helpers have really moved that to another level as well. It definitely had to be a difficult time emotionally for you when 1997 when Broadway Arcade closed and I mean you talked about having to move one door over and the 80s yeah. and I mean really pinball in 97 tough times yeah. right because you know Williams was getting well, that, well soon after I mean the last game I think we operated was Attack from Mars from Williams that was I remember the last game I bought right before Medieval Madness came out uh, we closed and um, yeah I mean it was um, like I said it was it was tough it was very tough financially it was not tough because um, this, you know, a lot of quarters <laughs> came over the transom back in the day. But but it wasn't more, it wasn't about the money. It was really about an identity. It was really about you know I put a lot into what I did, and I, I guess I felt that was who I was. As it turns out, that's not the case. And uh, but seeing myself on film and uh, when it first came out, I guess especially when it was in 2010, uh, I just saw this uh, really got me motivated and uh, got me back and sort of broke me out of whatever the funk was and uh, you know got me to this point today so you know 
know, I'm, I'm happy the way things worked out. I wish I could have, would it still be working Broadway Arcade if it was there? Trust me, I wouldn't have, I would have died and been buried in a pinball machine <laughs> from Broadway Arcade if it worked out that way. But, uh, well, let's know, not hope that happens. And, and you know what? <laughs> Think of the history. Think of what you, yeah. not what isn't there now. Think of what you brought for so many generations, how many people you got into pinball. How many people walk through there? I don't think there's an arcade anywhere in the world that can say more people walk through your arcade, Steve, than anywhere else. And that might have been their first time ever seeing pinball. That might have got them hooked. That might have been the fix they need. That might have got them out of trouble where they could have been on the streets doing other horrible things. But, you know, you brought everyone together, and that's a pretty amazing thing. And there's no – I hope there are zero regrets. Because there shouldn't be. You- oh, no, 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 no regrets. I have absolutely none, none whatsoever. I've been very blessed. I've been blessed with a wonderful wife and a br- wonderful kids, and I got seven grandkids. I, I, I've had a what you would have to consider a magical life, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I really appreciate you saying what you just did. It makes me feel really, very, very, very humble. And uh, yes, I, uh, I'm very proud of what we accomplished. And to this day, being at Pinburg, which unfortunately was my first one and not my last, I was thrilled. I was so thrilled to meet so many people that had just started playing three, four years ago and started competing. You know, I mean, I, I was growing for a group of people that had been hardcore players, but now the future is so bright. I mean, with so many young kids and, and, and so much. Uh, out there and, and tournaments every day and, and just the awareness of it, it really is quite rewarding. And uh, I'm so happy to have met you and, uh, again and, and at Pinburg and, and just to, you know, just to talk, to, just to talk pinball. It's like heaven on earth. Steve, I cherish that moment more than you know. And it was great. When I saw you there at Intergalactic, I'm like, okay, forget the games. I'm talking to this man right now and, <laughs> and hopefully down the road at Pinball Profile like we're doing right now. And it's a pleasure now. I'm going to ask you again to come on because this is just scratching the surface of your great pinball history. And in fact, not only should you be most proud about having all those people come through Broadway Arcade, you also, probably more than anybody else in the world, can have a bunch of quarters in your pocket, pull them out, and probably guess exactly how many are in your hand. Not many people can do that. No, that's one of the, uh, you ask Roger, the sideshow I used to put on, we used to play, and I'd have my change apron on, because that's what I did. I gave out change, and that was what I wasn't happy to do. And yeah, I could actually keep a game going and hand someone five bucks and quarters, all without losing a ball. Um, yeah, it, it became quite uh, quite the fun and interesting experience for people that used that. And people got used to it. You know, it was uh, they were wowed in the beginning, but then they, you know, it became something ordinary. But uh, yeah, to think about it, yeah, that's something uh, very unique. Hopefully, creeps like me didn't slip in a Canadian quarter. That would have messed everything up. Ooh, yeah, those were tough. (laughs) I have my American quarters set aside. Don't you worry. Okay, Steve. Very good. (laughs) I cannot thank you enough for coming on Pinball Profile today. My pleasure, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome, Jeff. Bye, bye. This has been your Pinball Profile. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. And please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. I'm Jeff Teolis. Oh, it-